All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Rick, and I'm the pastor of Student Ministries here. And uh, we are continuing our series on the above-average life. Uh, Jesus referred to it as the abundant life, um, second-mile life, eternal life, uh, sourced by joy in God. All right? That's what we're talking about here. And uh, if you'd like to catch up on our previous messages, uh, Tim uh, has spoken the last few weeks, and you can find those online. Uh, but today, I'm going to be talking about overcoming discouragement. I'm sure we can immediately imagine how having the tools for that, uh, having the resources for that would be fundamental in living the above average life, right? So as a pastor, um, I definitely want people to deal with painful emotions skillfully. Like, I want us to live pleasant lives for sure. Um, but my interest, even beyond that, in relieving, you know, suffering, is for us to treat these periods of discouragement and the negative emotions that go along with it as opportunities to build faith, right? To get closer to the abundant life that Jesus comes to bring. We're not just trying to eliminate uh, painful emotions. We're looking to become the kind of people who can enjoy God, glorify Him forever while going the second mile to serve people who don't have the spiritual resources that we do, okay? And I think the remedy to the inevitable periods of discouragement that every person is going to face uh, is going to be the joy of the Lord, right? A deep and forever sense of well-being, of knowing that uh, God has our destiny, identity, and purpose in his hands. Uh, he's got good stuff for us, uh, mainly that we would learn how to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and experience the joy that comes with it, all right? So I was born in 1984, which I think technically makes me a millennial, okay? And uh, I think it's 80 or 82, where you're not one, but by number, I guess, technically, all right? And also, um, I did receive a participation trophy once, all right? Uh, but I was uncomfortable with it. I didn't understand why it was happening. <clears throat> Thought it was kind of weird. I gave it away as a white elephant gift a few years ago. Uh, I wrote Rick Loves You on it, and my friend thought it was hilarious, and now he has it on his bookshelf, okay? Um, and so by number, technically, I'm a millennial, but I do, I was at that early time where we still played games that were dangerous and not a good idea to play, all right? Uh, one such game was called Red Rover, all right? And uh, I don't know when they quit playing that. Maybe they're playing it now, okay? Uh, but basically, if you're unfamiliar with this game, kids line up on one side. We do this and try to keep kids from running through our arms, which is very helpful if there's a flash flood and you're doing a human chain and someone tries to break your chain, all right? You're super strong. And uh, you basically say, Red Rover, Red Rover, send, in my case, Ricky right over. And so it was a Wednesday night at church. I weighed like 80 pounds or something like that. I was on the younger end of all these kids. And like a young person, absolutely thought I was way stronger and heavier than I was. And so you would have been proud. You would have been inspired. I mean, like I ran as fast as I could. And the next thing I knew was absolutely flat on my back, looking at the beautiful blue South Florida sky with the church on this side, palm trees on this side. And uh, immediately, you know, we're getting blown out like that. I immediately think of my grandfather, who's like the toughest guy I know, uh, grew up on a farm in Finland, uh, construction guy, army guy, broke his leg when he was a kid and went to the veterinarian because that's like all they had, okay? And uh, his pain tolerance is just inspirational. I mean, he's a man, right? I'm thinking, that's who you come from, buddy. You got this, right? 
And then I realized, it really hurts. <laughs> I'm like seven, like who's going to crack on me if I let a few tears out? You know, well, really trying not to. But in the moment of deciding which way I was going to go in this instance, thankfully, really thankfully, Pastor Mike, uh, the children's pastor, stuck his round, white, mustached, dark-haired head in my line of vision and was not being sarcastic. I mean, he sounded like a football coach who wanted to win. He yells in my face, boy, can you take a hit, Superman? And I cannot explain how this worked. I think I grew two inches. All the pain was gone. I got up and was so ready to jump in again. I mean, like, I have never changed that quickly from just a few words, all right? And so, like I said, I'm the student pastor, and in hindsight, I know exactly what he was doing. Like, my dad was on the board, and he didn't want to get in trouble for having me play this game. Um, and so he, all he had to do was keep me from being upset, and it worked. Um, but that being said, I'm sure that there's enough life experience in this room uh, to where everybody who's here uh, has at some point had some sort of event that's just knocked him out, Right? I mean, like, seriously challenged your beliefs about God and yourself and, and what's important and what's not and how the world works. Maybe you prayed really seriously to the Lord to answer a prayer, and he did not do what you expected, right? It's very possible that your children have absolutely broken your heart or a spouse has done something that's absolutely surprised you or a medical diagnosis was given, which is a literal threat to your physical existence, right? Like, We've all experienced something that has really challenged us and tempted us to despair. And in that case, we can't rely on a children's pastor giving us a cute little pep talk, right? We're too old for that. We know that we need more foundational truth. We need deeper stuff. Cliches and motivational speeches aren't going to do the job, right? And so we're going to discuss for a minute here uh, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives. Uh, chapter 5 is where we're going to start in the Beatitudes. If you read this wrongly, this is the opposite of an inspirational piece, all right? But if you interpret it, I think, the way Jesus intended it to be, this is a massively hope-giving piece here. The Sermon on the Mount, keep in mind, this is only the introduction. It continues into the rest of chapter 5, 6, and 7. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus's illustration of what life sourced resourced and guided by the kingdom of God looks like. He gives examples in there. They're not laws. They're not commandments. They're examples of what a person can do if their heart, soul, mind, and strength are absolutely captured by the kingdom of God, okay? So I'm going to read it here. Uh, Jesus begins his sermon saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So the way I read this in college, the reason I got depressed when I read this, uh, the way many people read it is to say, 
if I want God to like me, I should be poorer than I am. Maybe I could blow some money in a bad business deal or something, right? And God will love me more if I'm poor. Maybe if I mourn, God will love me more. Um, if I can find some sort of persecution, then maybe God will love me more. That's just not what he's doing here. What he's doing is giving a list of people who are not usually envied by anybody, all right? Uh, this is a list of people um, who are considered annoying. I mean, peacemakers, how many times have you been really mad about something and wanted someone to validate all your anger, and they just kind of want to see it from someone else's perspective, and then you get mad at them, right? Peacemakers, I mean, they're not just rejected outside the church. Inside the church, we have a hard time with people who want to see both sides to an issue, or uh, people who mourn. I mean, if you really love someone, you'll mourn with them, but after a while, it becomes kind of taxing, right? People who hunger and thirst for righteousness, like the prudes, you know, who don't want to have any fun. I mean, like, these, this is a group of people who, even if we kind of know what they're trying to do, would not say, I want to be like that. But what Jesus is saying here is that these people that the world and a lot of the church would consider unlucky, unfortunate, unblessable, unenviable, if these people are alive in the kingdom of God, if they are trading their life for the life that Jesus would live in them at all times, they are better resourced, they're more fortunate than the rich and famous who might not have this situation, right? And so obviously, we're not talking about uh, just happiness here, right? Um, to be in the kingdom of God, which is what this uh, illustration is about, is to desire God's desires, right? To join the kingdom of God means joining in the life that he's living, accepting his purpose, identity, and destiny for us, and learning to weather the circumstances with him, whatever they may be, all right? Um, so we live in, I like where I live, we live in a consumer culture. Uh, if we were somewhere else, we'd have different problems, uh, but the ones we have here is that beliefs uh, are usually pushed that the solution to all of our problems is to buy something, usually, right? You get happiness from buying, um, and we don't even get to the point where we're saying, happiness really isn't high enough, right? Happiness is built on circumstances, which means your motivation is at the mercy of whatever is going on, right? But joy, it doesn't even enter into our mind most of the time, that joy is available to us, and that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And it is by the joy of the Lord we're able to go the second mile, love enemies, uh, do things that have to be done, uh, but without the motivation of being recognized, right? We really do need the joy of the Lord in our lives. This is such a foreign idea that even though I take this very, very seriously, I read a lot on this, I'm serious about being a student of Jesus, right? Uh, I remember in one of my master's classes, uh, we had a professor who was on a break from being a missionary in Cambodia. He'd been there 20 years, seen absolutely horrible stuff uh, that the Khmer Rouge had, had inflicted upon citizens there, and uh, just grew up in a different situation. I mean, he was American, but spent a lot of time overseas. Was working on his PhD at Oxford on missions, and we were taking a cross-cultural ministry class from him. And he said, one of the strangest, most confusing, kind of like shocking things I remember hearing as a grown person. And this just messed with my head. I didn't know what to do with it for a little while. But he's in this class, and he says to a group of American kids, obviously, he says, have you ever noticed how obsessed Americans are with success? And as I heard him, I mean, I thought, 
I mean, is it remarkable that the sky is blue? You know, like we're breathing all the time. We never notice. Okay. What are you talking about? They're like, of course we're obsessed with success. What else would you do with your time? What does people in other countries do, right? I mean, of course we want success. But what he had learned in another culture, um, without all the advertising, while being a faithful servant of the Lord as a missionary, is that if the definition of success is getting what you want, uh, that's not exactly what Jesus is calling us to, right? He's calling us to get what God wants, which is to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, let him determine the desires that we have. Uh, Psalm 37 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And you can read that in a way where he's going to give me what I want, or you can read it as, I, if I delight in God, he will determine the desires that I have. Like, I will want things that he wants if I uh, want things he wants if I delight in them. Um, so we're talking about something that's beyond happiness based on circumstances. Uh, Dallas Willard has said that the cross uh, is the ultimate symbol of uh, expressing, I don't have to get my way to be happy, right? I mean, that, that is the major truth of the cross, and it's what Jesus says is the prerequisite for us following. We have to take up our cross and follow him, or it's just not going to work out. Um, so what causes us to be discouraged, usually? Uh, I think it's usually a what and a when issue, okay? It's going to be helpful to know this so we can identify when we actually are being discouraged. The what part is when we either don't get what we want or will we, when we get what we don't want, okay? And sometimes it's a when issue when we don't get what we want when we want it, right? And maybe you'll achieve it in the future, but it's harder than you thought. It took a little bit longer. It took a little bit more resources. And so I think it's going to be really helpful to us as we're cultivating joy in the Lord and cultivating deeper belief in God's purpose, identity, and destiny for us to recognize times of discouragement as opportunities to deepen our faith with the Lord and to lean into Him. So I think there's three habits that are going to be helpful to us uh, as we not only make it through discouraging events and times, but to really get some value out of it. I think in, in some cases, uh, we can really discover some value in discouragement. Uh, the first way would be to update our expectations as we run into things that surprise us, all right? This is what it is to be wise, to skillfully interact with what's actually going on. Uh, skill for life is to know what's going on and, and not just deny reality. Um, but I think it's going to be important to update our expectations of God, of our neighbors, and ourselves in different situations, okay? And so a few weeks ago in a staff meeting, uh, it was after a ministry event, and Tim gave us some great advice for updating our expectations with God. He says, just be careful not to assume that you know what God is doing in someone else's life at any given time. I think that's one of the most insightful pieces of advice as a practicing Christian who's loving their neighbor that I've ever heard. If we honestly refrain from assuming that we know what God is doing in someone's life at the time, it's way easier to be patient and kind to them. Uh, and if we back that up by instead of assuming we know what God's doing, we can actually do what uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says to do, to trust in the Lord with all your heart, Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. I think what this looks like is not a neurotic and nervous and fearful asking, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? But a, but a faithful awareness that God is at work with people he loves, which is everyone around us. And we can ask him continually, 
not neurotically, but continually and faithfully, what would you have me do in this position, if anything? So when Jesus says to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, I think that happens when we're doing that. We're trying to get involved in God's life and not just assuming we know what he wants to do. I think it's really helpful, really encouraging to me, to read how absolutely terrible Jesus' disciples were at doing what I'm talking about. All right, uh, We can find some relief there. But uh, constantly, the disciples expected Jesus to do things they wanted him to do and that he had no interest in doing. All right, So, uh, for instance, they get rejected from a town, and one of the disciples says, you want us to call down fire from heaven on the town, blow it up for you? And Jesus is now it has nothing to do with uh, seeking and saving those who are lost, so no, uh, we're not going to do that. Um, the um, transfiguration happens, right? This revelation of God in heaven, and immediately Peter says, let's put a shrine here because of this. Okay, no, that, I guess that's what people would do, but Jesus has no interest in doing that at the time. Uh, Jesus is going to wash Peter's feet. This, I mean, can you imagine that happening? I mean, that would twist any of our brains up. That's difficult. But this absolutely violated his expectations, argues with Jesus, and Jesus has to convince him. Eventually, Peter tells Jesus, you're not going to be crucified. And at that point, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's pretty discouraging, right? Constantly. Even after the resurrection, which is the biggest event in human history, right? Jesus conquers death. And in Acts chapter 1, this huge event happens. And their response is, is it now time to restore the kingdom of Israel? Their concerns were limited to making Israel great again, right? And Jesus responds by saying, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? We have to allow God to have bigger expectations of what can happen than us, and us jump in. Um, Secondly, updating our expectations of our neighbor is going to be hugely helpful in getting along with people, not being discouraged. Uh, My best man, Danny Joyner, we uh, do devos in the morning, And a few weeks ago, he talked about how he heard a marriage conference speaker ask, what do you guys think is the biggest threat uh, in a marriage? And so people threw out the stuff like money problems or like sex or not dividing chores or different football teams or something. I don't know. And, And he says, no, those are symptoms of the problem. The deepest problem that causes human conflict in any relationship is different expectations, right? And being surprised and being offended when someone couldn't read our mind. Um, And so he said, be careful with that, right? And and if you think about the times, you've been angriest with people. You see something on the news, you hear something. Usually that instant outrage is, surprise has some part of it, right? When someone doesn't interpret an event as we do, or someone doesn't value things as we do, we had this assumption that people think about things exactly the same way we do and have the same values we do. And to be honest, it's just, it's not responsible to feel that way at this point in our lives. We have to know that people think differently than each other. We can still be offended for sure, but the fire will be taken out of it a little bit if we're not as surprised by it. And what can be encouraging about this is that there's a whole group of people that surprise us all the time, and we think they're hilarious, and we really enjoy them for it, Uh, and that is children, all right? If you are a teacher... Uh, half, I would say, your benefits are hearing some of the things they say because they're hilarious, right? 
they do things that you don't expect and it totally lightens your mood, right? So one time when I was a kid, my dad's given me a bath and he takes me out of the tub, sets me in front of the toilet and in the toilet seat, we had this shag carpet cover and he turns to get a towel, looks over and I'm like wiping my face off with no hands on this shag carpet cover. Um, and he says, at that moment, I realized you can never know what a child is going to do. Like, you just never can. If we apply that rule to grown-ups as well, all right, um, it's going to help us be way more patient with people and help us become peace seekers when we're not as surprised. And then up expectations of ourself, right? We have to update these as well. Um, I had a friend back at home. Uh, we did a small group for guys in a halfway house who were recovering. And the guy that we were working for, he would spend his Friday nights going and finding homeless guys and bringing them to the houses that his ministry had rented. Like, this is what he would do. An absolute saint. And uh, he was in some very discouraging situations multiple times. He'd work with people who were addicted, and sometimes the chances of recovery just weren't high, meaning it's not the hope of recovery that's driving this guy. There's something else that's motivating him. And we asked him, how do you keep from falling into despair over this and just quitting? Like, how do you keep the discouragement from making you quit? And his response was, I just have to know and acknowledge my own brokenness, right? Interpret what's going on as a reminder that every human being is frail. And if we feel strong, it's because not enough things have happened yet. We're a few tragedies away from absolutely falling into despair. It is by the Lord's grace that we're not. And keeping that sense of creatureliness, knowing that we're creatures, we're not machines, we're loved by God, we need the Lord, is, is really going to be a helpful lesson as we update our expectations. In addition to that, uh, getting rid of a fixed mindset and adopting a growth mindset is going to be really important. Uh, there's an education professor named Carol Dweck who's done a lot of uh, research on this, and she said that a growth Mindset is one that believes that when I fail at something, I can get better. And a fixed mindset is someone who takes their failures to their heart and says, it's too hard, I'm not going to improve. Um, and this has huge implications for a Christian life. That's what it is to be a disciple, is to have a growth mindset. Um, I think it's really significant that when people were first called Christians, it had been years that they were disciples of Jesus, Right? people started noticing, you guys look like little Jesuses, right? Let's call you Christians. That's what they call them. They didn't start out like that. They started out by understanding themselves as students of Jesus. And because they had that growth mindset, they actually looked like Jesus and people called them that. And so it's, it's really helpful for us to not let failure go to our heart, but instead let it go to our head in awareness that we just didn't expect something right. Our skill level wasn't as high as it needed to be in something, and we can improve is what happens. And when we do those two things, we update expectations, we have a growth mindset. Um, if we commit our lives to the Lord, acknowledging we absolutely don't have everything figured out yet, no one's claiming to be perfect at all, but we do want to follow Jesus. When those three things are in place, I think it's possible to be aware of the emotions you feel, okay? Whether it's uh, fear, anger, sadness, disgust. These are like four universal human emotions. And they're the ones that'll most likely cause us to be discouraged. If we can be mindful of them, aware of them, and know that they're caused by some belief that we have and track it to that belief we have, 
um, that's going to help us progress as students of Jesus, to value emotions not as something that we necessarily need to obey, um, but understand that they are pointing to a belief we have, and we should re-examine that, right? So what this might look like is uh, there's this little girl who sees her mom making a ham, all right? And her mom cuts the front end and the back end off of the ham, sticks it in a pan, in the oven, and the little girl has no idea why she did this. And so she says, Mom, uh, you know, why'd you cut both ends off of the ham? And she says, oh, I don't know. It's what your mom did or what your grandma did. And so the little girl calls her grandma and says, hey, grandma, I noticed mom cuts the front and back end off the ham. And uh, just didn't know why you did that. She says she learned it from you. And grandma says, oh, I don't know. That's what uh, your great-grandma did. And so she calls her great-grandma in the retirement home, says, hey, great-grandma, mom and grandma cut both ends off the ham before they stick it in the oven, and I can't understand why they would do that. And she says, oh, yeah, the pan I had was too small. And so you got this situation. We have so many habits like this in life. We have so many emotions that are based on beliefs or habits or behaviors that really don't, they're unneeded at this point. And, they're, and many of them will be inconsistent with the new beliefs and the new confidence that we have in Jesus. And so a big part of the rest of our lives as disciples of Jesus is to pay attention what we're feeling when and thinking what belief does that lead to and then compare that against the beliefs that we have in Jesus, um, which is a pretty tall order, right? To think of all the things Jesus claimed Um, that's a huge thing. It will take the rest of our lives, but in order not to get too discouraged over it. um, I think it's going to be really helpful if we focus on three big um, parts of our life, all right, which is purpose, identity, and destiny. Uh, Tim referred to this last week. I'll be referring to it again. Um, I don't know if you guys ever heard the the Pareto principle or the 80-20 rule. It basically says that if you're in business, 20% of your customers produce 80% of your revenue. In a church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Um, 20% of your efforts as just a human being are responsible for 80% of the results of whatever it is you're working on, okay? And so I think that if we specifically ask the Lord to teach us about the purpose, identity, and destiny he has for us, that's going to cover so much of our Christian life. It's going to be way more helpful than like memorizing Leviticus or something, okay? Um, So the purpose uh, that we can trace emotions back to, first, the purpose of humankind, uh, the Westminster Confession says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, right? Um, We, anytime we really, really enjoy something, choose to partake in it, choose to tell other people about it, we are glorifying it. The most authentic way of glorifying anything is by enjoying it. You trust it to give you enjoyment. And so how the cultural narrative would disagree with us a little bit is not over whether we're seeking enjoyment or not. Uh, everybody does. You can't not seek enjoyment. You can, you can avoid uh, pain more than you seek pleasure, but avoiding pain is for the sake of having pleasure when you can, all right? Um, and so we're, uh, I've taught the youth that at any point in your life, it is probable, no matter what you're doing, uh, that you are doing the thing that you believe will bring you the most pleasure that you believe is actually available, all right? And what you trust for is all over the place. I mean, we disagree over that all the time. But 
The kid who studies like crazy to get good grades and get a good job and feel a sense of satisfaction and all that stuff is seeking pleasure in that, right? Um, the kid who doesn't care about school at all and binge watches Netflix forever, um, that's in accordance with his belief that the most pleasure available to him, maybe based on beliefs about his skills or something, um, he's seeking pleasure there, right? And so we're all doing different things, but the point of it all is to put us in best position to experience pleasure, right? Now, the huge difference where Christians and any other uh, religion or secular ideology would disagree is that we believe you are formed best. Your chances of ultimate and eternal enjoyment are absolutely highest when we choose to love God with all of our hearts, of mind, and strength because, as John Piper says, God is more enjoyable than anything he's made. That's what it means to be God. And we can, we can get logical about this or we can get emotional about this, but to me it makes sense that the creator of all of the other things in the world that we think are so pleasing, the one who invented that and made it possible for us to experience it, he is potentially more enjoyable than all of that other stuff, right? And you can trace a false belief when we're acting in accordance to a false belief, when we look to something sinful, that God's forbidden for our pleasure. Like, we can easily see that my actions going after something God has forbidden is like acid on faith. I mean, when you behave in a way that's inconsistent with what you say, uh, normally we just throw a lot of shame on the hypocrisy, but the biggest danger is that it kills the belief that you have, right? It like struggles with it and diminishes it. And so, we can be aware that our emotions are leading us the wrong way if we're seeking enjoyment from something other than God above him. Uh, secondly, identity is absolutely crucial um, to agree with the Lord about. Uh, Henry Nouwen uh, was a priest who taught at Harvard and Yale and found it unfulfilling for some reason and went and worked in a special needs home for like 20 years after that or something and wrote a bunch of books. And a very impactful writer, and he wrote about how in Matthew chapter 4, when you read about the temptation of Jesus, this was a tax on Jesus' identity. So like he's being tempted to, to make stuff, to take these big risks, to actually try to gain influence by submitting to the devil, right? And you can listen to the sermon on YouTube or something. But uh, now and basically says the three temptations was to leave his belief that the most important thing about him was that he was God's beloved son in whom God is well pleased, meaning that he is the beloved of God. That's the most important thing about him. That's the most important thing about us is that God loves us. And instead, act in a way that says, we believe we are what we produce, what we possess, or what people say about us. That's what those temptations were trying to cause him to do. And if you think about it for a little while, pray through it a little bit, we can imagine how knowing who we are in the Lord empowers us to do all kinds of things with the Lord um, that we wouldn't be able to do if we were relying on people around us to admire us for what we possess, what we produce, or what people say about us. Uh, those temptations that Jesus experienced were experienced later. People wanted him to make bread for them, and he told them that he was the bread, lost the crowd over it, and he kept going. He wasn't discouraged by this loss. He had won the temptation with identity earlier. People would slap him when he's about to get crucified and say, if you're a prophet, who did it? 
And he didn't feel the need to prove himself to this group of people because he'd already passed that test. His knowledge of his identity allowed him to serve and allowed him to refrain from reaction because Jesus absolutely knew who he was deeply. Uh, Third, knowing our destiny is going to be absolutely crucial if we're to deal with discouragement skillfully. Destiny based on, or perspective based on destiny. So, I think a lot of secular narratives or even many religious narratives would kind of say, I mean, the good life, the end of your destiny is to live a good life and maybe your grandkids will appreciate you. You know, maybe you'll be a hero to somebody or in other words, people will love you, right? Well, we just talked about how we have the love thing met in our identity. If we can hold on to that, that changes what we're looking for and and what we hope our destiny looks like. Uh, The Christian narrative Uh, The gospel that I was taught as a kid, and I do agree with this, this is true, even though it's a little incomplete, uh, Christian destiny is to be forgiven by Jesus of our sins, to not go to hell, and to go to heaven, right? I mean, that's really important. Like, I'm a big fan of all of that. It's, It's huge. But that's not all there is. There's way more to it before that, that the God, that God seriously values. Uh, Richard Foster says, the goal of the Christian life is not so much to get you into heaven as much as it's about getting heaven into you. And you can think about interacting with people who are discouraged. I mean, whether it's at the store or drivers who are angry or whatever, um, the world does need the resources of heaven absolutely badly. And we need it too. Or we will turn to things that will limit us and shrink us, right, in our pursuit of joy. Uh, Dallas Willard believed that the destiny of Christians and the the hopeful destiny of absolutely everybody as they begin to follow Jesus is that our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths, our characters, our values, our feelings, our interpretations, everything about us would be so transformed by Jesus that he would be able to say yes to anything we ask for. It's a wild thought. And that's not prosperity gospel stuff. We're not talking about buying yachts or something, you know, praying for a private jet. We're talking about your character being so focused on what God is doing all the time, finding that so interesting that the things you're going to be asking for is the courage to do it, the skill to engage your neighbor, um, extra love and patience for somebody that you simply don't have in the moment, um, perhaps financial resources for some mission you'd have. But the idea that God would say, I know, I, I know he's been transformed to this point to where we can empower this guy to continue to glorify the Lord. And so, how does this look, right? This is a long process we're talking about. You have to be patient for this sort of thing. You cannot be discouraged too quickly about it. I think uh, I've got that continuum on uh, the bullets in there where it talks about how first it's information, right? First you hear the preaching of the gospel. First you really think about it for a while. You're exposed to this new information. Uh, You meditate on the idea that I have a purpose for myself before it was challenged, you know, that God's actually more enjoyable. I was building a name for myself, and it made me feel really great, but Jesus' love for me is a bigger deal than anything I'm going to do. The destiny that God has for me is bigger than that really cool retirement I had planned or people admiring me later on. Not that those aren't going to happen, but that Jesus' destiny for me is much bigger than that. And then we act in ways on the observation level by putting actions into practice that reflect those beliefs, right? The way we grow in faith is by practicing beliefs, having our physical actions, the way we spend our time, um, the way we engage with people, strengthen that belief, right? It's kind of an experiment until you're actually faced with a situation that calls for us to act in accordance with that belief. 
After we do that enough, we become immersed in our faith, right? The habits of Jesus, the values of Jesus, the way he thinks actually begins to exist in our body, and it's there, and it becomes easier and easier. When we're at the immersion level of faith, it means we're really in this, and it's in us. And then finally, uh, we can abandon ourselves to God, fully trusting that he's got our purpose, identity, and destiny in his hands, and he's got bigger plans for us than we have for ourselves, and being able to follow him anywhere. I'm going to close with a story here that illustrates the power of a life abandoned to God um, and how it affects other people too, okay? Uh, There was a pastor in Iran. He's been martyred now. His name is Hussein Sudmond. He was a pastor in Mashhad, which is a very religious Islamic town in Iran. Hussein grew up as a Muslim, and he lived next to a Christian village. There are some Christians in Iran, and they're seen as second class. They're spat upon and yelled at. So when he was a kid, he tells his testimony that he would go out to this neighboring village and hurl insults at the Christians. All these Muslim boys would get these rocks, and whenever the Christian women would come out with their clay pots of water, they would throw these rocks in order to bust their pots of water. So one day, he went out with a rock and hurled it at one of these Christian ladies and hit the pot and busted the pot of water. He was so startled that he actually hit it that he turned around and started running away. He tripped and fell and scraped his entire leg. He heard the lady approaching, and he embraced himself for a whooping. He said that the woman instead knelt down and pulled out a rag, starting to wipe the blood off and started to clean his wound. He was just blown away. Here I am insulting and attacking, and she's loving me, he said. And years later, that same pastor was involved in a war that injured him and put him in a hospital. And of course, the Christian nurse was take, a Christian nurse was taking care of him. So she starts sharing the truth of God, and he remembered that Christian lady, how she bound his wounds, and how he, and he eventually became a Christian. He became one of the leaders of the house church movement in Iran, and they found out about him and ordered him to leave Mashhad. And he said, I won't leave my sheep alone. He had 50 people in his church, and he would not leave them alone. And so they hung him in the square in Mashhad. He was forever changed because somebody loved him. So not only is this lady who has rocks thrown at her, I guarantee you she's feeling sadness, fear, anger, disgust at such actions. These are the emotions that cause discouragement. But she has the joy of the Lord, right, which can deal with those emotions and interpret those emotions and what's going on. She's abandoned herself. She looks like the description in the Sermon on the Mount, right, when we go the second mile, when we love enemies. She does this. Who knows what else she did in life? But in this guy's case, he was impacted to the point where he makes it to the level of abandonment in God to where he's not going to leave 50 people alone. That as a pastor... Sorry. In the United States, where there's worship of crowds and butts in seats and budgets and all of these shallow metrics, the idea that the Holy Spirit would get someone's heart to the point where he's not going to leave 50 people alone is beautiful. All right? I want that. I want this for you, that level of abandonment for all of us that will help us withstand the trials the Lord has for us. And, and reach out in love to neighbor to share this gospel that is what we each need so badly. 
So my, my encouragement to you today, I know that profoundly difficult things have happened in everybody's life at different times. I ask you, as someone else, a human who is also vulnerable, do not waste those opportunities. Bring them to the Lord. Understand that in that, he is the source of not only the alleviation pain of pain, but the restoration of your heart. These trials exist to remind us of who we are and who he is.